Welcome to Behavior Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people interested in positively applying behavioral science to their work and life. We do this by having fun and engaging conversations with a wide variety of people. In this episode, we are continuing our series with Carnegie Mellon researchers and sharing a conversation we recorded in a conference room in Porter Hall with professors George Lowenstein and Linda Babcock. We want to note that we recorded and published a separate conversation with Linda in this series on her research on empowering women in the workplace. This is significant, and we highly recommend that you check it out. However, for this discussion, she joined Tim and me with our conversation in George and acted as a third host, asking some great questions and probing in on some key and vital points. Yeah, she was a pretty great interviewer. Yeah, she's probably better than us. <laughs> yeah, yes, definitely. That's not, that's not too hard to do, but no, she was better than us. Yeah, definitely. George Lowenstein is the Herbert A. Simon Professor of Economics and Psychology in the Social and Decision Sciences Department at Carnegie Mellon University and is Director of the Center for Behavioral Decision Research. George is a rare bird. He received his PhD in economics but was always interested in topics well beyond his field. He's renowned for his research focusing on the behavioral aspects of economics and he is recognized as one of the founders of the field of behavioral economics. During his career, George has indulged his curiosities in research projects such as risk, confidence, the effects of feelings, emotions, wanting and enjoying sex, sequencing, preferences, and bargaining. And don't forget, Tim, incentives, privacy, healthy behaviors, investing, empathy, and sympathy to name but a few. <gasps> Classic underachiever. While George may not be a household name, he is a rock star in the world of behavioral economics. Nobel laureate Richard Thaler dedicated his last book, Misbehaving to George. His work has been cited nearly 100,000 times in published articles and peer-reviewed papers. God, that is a lot. It is. He is not only remarkably curious, he is remarkably productive. Our discussion with George focused on some of the new work that he's doing on the subject of boredom, and we were surprised to learn that there is no comprehensive functional theory on boredom. Boredom. <laughs> I hope people aren't bored already. In our grooving session, Tim and I discussed some of the implications of boredom in the workplace and ways that we can make meetings more successful. We also talked about attentional focus and also using method acting to change our emotions. So sit back and enjoy another episode in our Carnegie Mellon series with our conversation with George Lowenstein. So, George, tell us about recent research you're working on with uh, boredom. It's not, real, I, it's not really research. It's a theory. Oh. I think um, most people, when they think about boredom, they, um, they just think, okay, I get bored when I'm not stimulated enough. But with a graduate student, um, Zach Wojtowicz, um, he and I are working on a functional theory of boredom, a theory to explain why boredom exists. And it's actually a theory of boredom and flow. And so the basic insight is that we have this limited resource that we call attention. And attention is something that you it's use it or you use it or lose it you can and you can really only apply it 
to pretty much one thing at a time. It's very, very flexible. It's fairly slow, like the types of processing that you do when you are focusing attention on something. And so it's very, it's extremely valuable resource. And the problem is we, we do have the ability to consciously direct our attention, to deliberately direct our attention. But when we do that, we are actually using up attention because we're focusing attention on the problem of how to allocate attention. And so our paper argues that uh, boredom is a mechanism. It's a kind of an automatic um, signal that we get that tells us change your focus of attention, but it doesn't, it's automatic, it doesn't actually involve, require attention to, it arises without um, conscious deliberation. And, and so that's going to cue that we aren't spending our time the right way and we should do something else? Is that's that right. It's a, it's a cue from our kind of autonomous system that we're not um, devoting our attention to the right things. Now, we also have an explicit system and we can decide whether we, we can deliberate about how to allocate our attention. So let's say, for example, that you are in a boring meeting and you would love to leave the meeting or you'd love to get on your phone or something like that, but your department head is in the meeting. And She's talking, and yeah, so you can't <laughs> not just a, do not that. Not a good yeah. move to yeah. get up and leave so, or to just pull your phone out That's at right. that yeah. point. So your implicit system is sending you the boredom signal, and your explicit um, system is saying, no, it's important to pay attention in this situation, even though my implicit system is making it really miserable to do that. So you're overriding so, that, that. Yeah, that's uh, right. You're overriding the signal. And so this model says that there's two types of situations in which you can exert self-control. Um, one is your um, autonomous system is making you really bored and your explicit system says it's worth overriding that signal. Flow is kind of the opposite of boredom. Flow is a signal that you get telling you don't change your focus of attention. So you might be playing some kind of a meaningless game and you're, flow, you're getting pleasure from playing the game, from this flow signal, and in that case it takes, suppose that you decide this is not really how I should be spending my time, you're ex explicitly you decide that, then in that case you could override flow, but at the cost of making yourself kind of miserable but, and tear yourself away from angry birds, for right. example. So yeah, it's not possible to be bored when you're in flow. Is that how to think about it? That's one of the predictions of yeah. our model, that you can't experience boredom and flow at the same time. Yeah. So this hasn't been explored. The, the, this is... There's really um, almost no theoretical models of boredom, like kind of functional models. Another thing that the theory helps to explain is why... So many people, um, if you ask people, like, what do you find boring? So many people will say meetings. Yeah. And that's kind of strange because there's, um, in a meeting, there's a lot of people typically um, talking to one another. It's actually, in the scheme of things, it's quite stimulating. 
relative to a lot of other things. So why are meetings, why do people find meetings boring? Well, our model says that your implicit system is kind of looking at some crude cues in your environment and saying, how much kind of sense making should I be doing in this situation? And if it falls short, you experience boredom when the amount of sense making you're doing falls short of this sort of evaluation of how much sense you should be making. So we kind of suspect that one of the cues that the implicit system is using for a um, situation where there should be a lot of sense making happening is the presence and it, of and the interaction with other people. So does that then, that component go into, as, as you're talking about that, it reminds me of like people meditating and you think that sitting there by nothing would be very boring. Exactly. And, but you know, there's a sense-making component of that meditation that makes it not. Is that kind of one of the kind of components? Would that be a I mean, I think that would be part of it, part, okay. part of the equation. But the other part is that the act of meditating must um, expose you to cues that lower the implicit system's expectation of how much sense-making will occur. Okay. Same thing with you're lying in bed, you're trying to go to sleep, and very rarely do I personally feel bored when I'm trying to go to sleep, even if I might be lying there for quite a long time waiting to go to sleep. And we think that that's kind of another kind of evolved function because you're not supposed to be, the whole idea is you shouldn't be making a lot of sense in that situation. <laughs> and so you, the implicit system has a low expectation. Yeah. And you're directing your attention towards something in a purposeful way. Isn't that part of the theory also? Or am I misreading that? That when I'm directing my attention in a purposeful way, I don't find those things boring. No, I mean, there could be a situation where, like in the meeting, you're trying to um, deliberately follow what people are saying because you think it's important, explicitly you think it's important, but you could be very bored in okay, that situation. Okay, I see, yeah. So yeah. really, we're interested in a variety of different signals, including pain, curiosity, and so on, but this particular paper is just about boredom and flow. And boredom in this framework it doesn't tell you what you should be paying attention to. It just says, don't pay attention to what it is you are currently paying attention to. Got it. Can I ask, what was the spark? What was the catalyst that got you thinking that you should dive into this? I think I'm just um, personally extremely prone to boredom. Like I, and I find it very, very painful. And... So I've always been curious about that. We've done a bunch of qualitative studies of boredom. This is actually with an, a prior graduate student, Amanda Markey. We did a bunch of qualitative and quantitative studies of boredom. And we asked people what makes them bored. A variety of people reported to me that they don't experience boredom, which was very surprising to me because I, I experienced <laughs> acute boredom all the time. When I'm sitting on a, in the train or on an airplane next to somebody who's just staring into space, to me that's one of the weirdest sights <laughs> there is. So like a lot of research 
project, this one has a kind of a personal origin. Do you think there are big individual differences in the extent to which people get bored? I mean, you say you get bored a lot. I think when reflecting, I don't think I'm ever bored. Mm-hmm. So a what does that people, say about us? A lot of people tell me that they never get bored. And then when I sort of press them on it, they say, oh, yeah, I, um, I do get bored <laughs> in that situation. But I mean, I think we all have the same brain chemistry and evolved mechanisms. But my prediction would be, like one possibility would be, one reason why you might not get bored and I would get bored is maybe you have a more active imagination or maybe you're better at kind of um, free flow of consciousness. And so or maybe that, you're just more case, aware of your own that, boredom than I am. Maybe yeah, yeah. that's it. That's You've thought more about that. But you might be doing a lot of sense making in situations where you're not getting a lot of stimulation, and I might not be. Or it's also possible that for some reason we, though, um, cues that that our implicit systems are using different cues to judge how much sense making we should make. So there would be. I don't. I think. Everyone is prone to, I think the mechanism is universal across people, but the ingredients into the mechanism could differ. So the expression of that mechanism could be variable within, based on some other factors that, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. I can see that very much the same way, so. Yeah. So, so is there any kind of practical relevance for people thinking about running a meeting, how to reduce boredom. I guess I'm super interested in this in that I'm in a lot of meetings. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're running a lot I'm of meetings. I'm running a lot of meetings. Yeah. I don't want people to be bored. How do I, how, how would I turn this into thinking about getting people more engaged and less bored? Well, d- despite sort of um, jokingly um, referring to you, I, I, <laughs> I, I actually, um, think I very rarely get bored in our departmental meetings. And I think the reason is, this is what I always say to people about our departmental meetings, that they really feel like um, problem, like what's going on is problem solving. Yeah, it's substantive, is, not is just reporting on yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, it's very substantive. Everyone is engaged in problem solving. They're also, they also tend to be, as far as I can see, very unpolitical, like people aren't defending turf. But that, that doesn't really relate directly to boredom. But so I think for whatever, um, you must already have some pretty good ideas about how to create meetings that avoid boredom. But I think, I think the key has to be on the side of making the meet, making the meeting meaningful, uh, making sure that sense making is going on because mm-hmm. the for everyone, um, my guess is that the cues that are present in a meeting will tend to kind of raise the bar on how much sense making we expect to occur. So Linda, what do you do? I mean, in your meetings now when you're you're putting them together because it seems like you're doing something right. Do you have a do you have a purposeful approach to how you're putting these meetings together or is it just more of a 
Well, I, you know, our department isn't one that we have faculty meetings every month. Some departments have them every couple of weeks. And I think it's more just to report on what's happening. And that is kind of boring. <laughs> um, so I only call a meeting when I need people to help me think about something that I want to solve. So it is that engagement that you were talking exactly. about, that component of saying this isn't a sit back and just be spoken to, but this is a we are we are all in this and we have to contribute and our contribution is going to help in whatever yeah. the outcome is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think we're all perhaps. engaged in like trying to find figure out what is the right thing to do, what's the best thing to do. And it's amazing how often in the when you go into a meeting like this you think maybe there isn't a best thing to do. And then after you discuss it back and forth for a while, it's amazing how often by the end of the meeting you're saying, oh yeah, it's obvious. We figured it out. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah. And that comes because you're you're working collaboratively in that and building off of each other from making that assumption in, Mm -hmm. in some of that, which again, lends itself to I think some of what you're talking about, that sense-making component of I'm getting some sense because of my interactions with what other people are saying and I need to, my attention is, is riveted because there's something that's making that feel like it's, it's bringing some sense to the conversation. So. That's right. Mm-hmm. Is yeah. another reason why it works, the, the idea that the people who are in that meeting are pursuing the same sort of sense-making? I think that's part of it, but I actually think it's related to some other aspect of George's work with David Hagman on persuasion. And that is, I think we in this department are willing to be persuaded by our colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so we're actually really listening to them to try to understand their perspective because it might change our mind. And I think when you're in a meeting and you know no one is going to change their minds, that's about something, then it's incredibly boring right. because it's a waste mm-hmm. of time. Yeah. So perhaps that's a piece of the secret sauce. Or, it doesn't or, feel futile. Yeah. Yeah. And when, when you are doing the speaking, you have a sense that other people might be persuaded by what you say. And when other people are talking, you're open to being persuaded. That's a, that's a really insightful point. That, that, I think, is an interesting, that last point that you made, George, because I know going to conferences and different things, there are some of those presentations where, again, you're not in an interactive component. You are literally listening. But I quickly realize, yeah, this is something important that might persuade or influence me versus mm-hmm. those speakers yeah. where I go. And that actually, yeah. yeah, that actually closes the circle because before I mentioned that something that I like about our meetings is that they feel very unpolitical. Like um, they're not, people are not defending turf. And I thought, okay, well that's just separately a good thing. But um, your point, Linda, suggests that it's not separate. It's, it's integral, inter- integral yeah. Yeah. to the meetings being interesting. Yeah. The fact that you're open to being persuaded and that you have the perception that other people are as well. It, this reminds me of some of the work that uh, came out of the Project Aristotle stuff that Google did a few years ago on psychological safety in teams and how important psychological safety, be- it becomes this foundation, right? And it almost sounds like your willingness to, your openness and your willingness to be persuaded has to do with a certain amount of psychological safety. Yeah, if you didn't trust your colleagues to be open themselves and to 
hear your ideas and really listen, I think that is a fundamental aspect of psychological safety. So I, I think it's actually, yeah, quite related. So to just make sure our listeners aren't getting bored with this conversation, um, George, is there any research that you've done in the past that you just feel maybe hasn't been appreciated or people haven't understood it to a point that you would like to say, hey, here, this was something that I thought was really insightful that just, you know, maybe didn't get as much Mm -hmm. attention, as much focus from out there, or maybe people took it this way and I, it, it really is this way. Is there anything that, that comes to mind? Well, um, I can think of two studies that I thought would get instantly snapped up by top journals. And okay. they, each of them um, turned out to be actually difficult to publish. One of the studies, um, this is, um, with a former graduate student, a former colleague, and Marcel Just, who's still in the psychology department here. This is a study where we used um, fMRI and machine learning to figure out what emotions people were experiencing. Okay. And the problem in the um, the problem that we faced is to do this type of study, you need to induce emotional different emotional states repeatedly and for short periods of time and that turns out to be very very difficult to do and finally um, my former colleague who now works for the Pittsburgh Steelers um, Karim um, Kassam he had this great idea which is that um, Carnegie Mellon one of its strengths is it has a great drama school Okay. And he had the idea, let's, rec- let's recruit um, drama students who are expert in putting themselves, if, if they do method acting, putting themselves into emotional states. And they, um, we did that. We first trained them to put themselves into emotional states for short periods of time. And then we scanned their brains um, after instructing them repeatedly to put themselves in different emotional states. And... We use machine learning to decode the brain patterns. Okay. And we were able to um, guess with very high degree of accuracy what emotions people were experiencing at different times just from looking at their brain patterns. So this had high real predicted validity here. Yeah. And, yeah, very high. And we could even put somebody, a new person into the scanner have them go into, uh, put themselves into an emotional state, and we could say, okay, they just, um, they're in a, they are in a state of sadness. Okay. And there were a whole series of interesting, I think, findings from the paper, for example. We were able to guess people's emotional state from looking at any one of five different regions of the brain, and that kind of supports the idea that emotions are reprogramming our whole brain. So we can, read our, we can read your emotions from your kind of um, cortex or from your brain area close to your brain stem, yeah. for, for example. And so I think that is also very informative about how emotions operate. And well, I thought that yeah, between the practical significance the the ability to read people's emotions without asking them yeah so um 
the example I always use is um, suppose that I walked into my colleague's office and said, oh, I just got a paper published in the American Economic Review. Um, and they would say, oh, that's wonderful. You express a lot of joy. But probably it would be, they would probably be feeling maybe more ambivalent. Well, you know, we all have mixed reactions to other people's good news. Yeah. yeah but nobody would ever report that. They would just report, but oh, you yeah. you could detect it. But we could detect it with this. So it has great practical significance, but it also has a lot of um, implications for things like the idea of emotion reprogramming our brain and right. so on. So I, I assume that when we submitted this to some very top journals, I assumed it was just going to get snapped up like to the first, by the first journal we submitted it to. And instead, we kept on getting what's called desk rejected. Like the editor would read it and um, would decide not to publish it. Now, we finally, we finally did find an outlet for it after many rejections. And now it is being well cited. But it was, that was a case um, where I was really surprised by the and, kind of the reception of this paper. Any hypothesis on why? I mean, was it just so out there or was it just the editors were just being well, you know. yeah. <laughs> no, <I'm not. laughs> yeah. I've I have no idea and and because it got desk rejected, we wouldn't get reviews. Yeah. And so we didn't get feedback. Yeah. Finally, the first journal we got that gave us reviews we were able to respond to the reviews, improve the paper, and then it got published at that journal. So, yeah, it's mis the publication process is mysterious. Yeah. Yeah, it, it can be, and it may be it just was a new perspective that didn't fit into any traditional disciplinary boundaries, and journals are often really pretty disciplinary focused, so it might have just been too... Mm -hmm innovative almost um so huh. well we we just talked with danny um oppenheimer and he you know one of his components was saying we we need to fail because that if we don't we're not pushing the boundary enough and it's almost like you know that pushing of this you might have been pushing some of those boundaries and some of those journals and and that's yeah, a good thing i, I tell is. people the same thing in negotiation if you never hear no it means you're not asking for enough <laughs> don't yeah. use that on me this though is george. <laughs> george is gonna be it's funny that. i have a project with a graduate student about the pain of being told no told no yeah, yeah. and um because i think a lot of us we don't like to be told no, and so we only ask for something if we think it's eminently reasonable. And because we pre-select requests by, um, based on this fear of rejection, then when we do get rejected, Linda, um, we, are, we get very... You get very upset. That's right. I, see, yeah. I like hearing no. I mean, it really, I do take it as a cue that I've pushed the boundaries, and I like that. I think there's a um, there are huge individual differences. We had a former colleague who I think had the attitude, well, if you know, it doesn't hurt to ask. Um, if I don't ask, then I'm not going to get something. Right. And this colleague didn't seem to mind being told no, but 
Um, but Linda, for me, it's very yeah. upsetting well, to be I, it's, told. it's good to know that about you, George. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, I think it, it, you, you talked about the individual differences on that, and I think there is a huge amount of differences in how people interpret that rejection component. And, you know, for some people, obviously, I mean, if you go into sales, you're going to be rejected. And if you have a high, you know, component where that no is something that is painful for you, I don't think you're going to do very well. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, those people probably will self-select out of that occupation. I just wrote about that in a, a paper about, it's a paper on fragile self-esteem okay and if you have fragile self-esteem you should not be in sales (laughs) that's probably a good thing yeah yeah well with that um is is there anything else that you would like to i can't believe you're not going to ask him about music i had to talk about my music on my oh don't please don't ask me about music (laughs) i I actually i listen to I, i can't work with music and I listen to, when I'm um, jogging or driving, I listen to books on tape. So I used to listen to a lot of music, but now, nowadays I barely ever, it's, I barely ever listen to music. So it wouldn't be a good thing to ask Well, actually, about. it's interesting that you don't listen to music while you work, because Tim can't either. Me neither. Mm-hmm. I, I, I no. do. Not at all. I can. No. I, I put music, as long as it isn't, doesn't have lyrics that I need to listen to, it actually allows me to drown out some of the other components. And we've had talked with other people on the podcast, and, and there's a difference in how people do that. And I wonder if there is, you know, that would be an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if anybody's ever studied it, but that would be... We should look I into fa- it. I, f- I found that atonal jazz I can work with atonal jazz but I don't particularly doesn't particularly help li- you I don't yeah. particularly like atonal jazz so <laughs> like what's the point <laughs> that doesn't help there yeah. you go thank you thank you both uh, for coming in this is really terrific to have both of you thank yeah. you it was right, a thanks. pleasure we appreciate it Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavior Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our never bored when listening to Behavioral Grooves podcast, Minds. That is my favorite. <laughs> that is the best introduction ever. You know, it could have also been when we are making, you know, Behavioral Grooves podcast, never yeah. bored, because I'm never bored. I'm never bored with this, you know? I'll, I'm just going to stay silent on that. <laughs> Fine, no, no. fine. Let's go on. So, so what do you think? What, what, what should we talk about? Let's talk about boredom. <laughs> talk about boredom. Are you saying you're bored with me? Is that what you're saying? Boredom in meetings. Boredom in meetings. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah. And, that, and also uh, the attentional focus. Great. Super stuff. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And what else? So, I would like to talk about action, the the way that they conducted the research. Of getting the, of understanding emotions, they used method acting. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. And I'd like to talk a little bit about how we could maybe take method acting um, and and kind of explore that in the business world and in our own emotional components. So okay. So with that, all right. That so let's right. talk about um, how boring you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that not what you no, meant when you. No. No, that's not what I meant. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I thought that's what you meant when we were going to talk about boring. No, it, okay. it's how boring I feel. Oh. Not, not, how, not how I am. <laughs> no, I, um, 
you know, the, I love this discussion with with George because he's always pushing the boundaries, right? Yeah. He's always exploring something, at least to me, that I that I, I think is fascinating. And this idea that boredom is automatic, right? That it, it will happen automatically. Well, that, that's a it's there's no functional theory out there on boredom, right? And and right. that he's putting these components around it that's saying, hey, boredom is actually a signal, and it's the signal to indicate that our focus isn't where it should be. Well, we're we're in a nonsense making mode. Right. And all and when that stops, the signal says now we're bored. As long as it is, when we think we should be in a sense making mode because that that's that component where we talked about, you know, meditation and and going to sleep and various different aspects there. So there's a context around this. Yes. But there's uh, and so my my mind immediately went to this discussion about the meetings and they have department meetings that are all about sense making. Mm. They have a very specific focus and they have the psychological safety and they have the trust of each other. And when it was just great when George said, "I believe that when I'm talking, the people that I'm talking to are willing to be persuaded, and when someone else is talking, that I am listening and I'm willing to be persuaded." Uh- that's that is not something that we see in the corporate world. No, it's not something that we see in in, in many aspects of our life. You know, I can think of <laughs> yeah. particularly yes. the persuasion aspect, right? right? right. Uh, it was so it was interesting when they when Linda talked about yeah we don't have you know every two weeks a you know departmental meeting we have departmental meetings when we need to explore something or have the entire group kind of weigh in. And I thought that was really fascinating. Again, that sense-making right there. Yeah. That is this component of being able to feel like I am being productive, that I have a impact on the decisions that are being made. And so it is very much a sense-making component. It is very purposeful and, and impactful and intentional. You can still have regular meetings that are sense-making, though. Yeah. Right? You, 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 you've had experiences in, in your life, right? So I did some work with this uh, with Oak Ridge Conference Center out in Chaska, Minnesota. And I've done a lot of work with conferences and hotels and different things. But this was one of those places where you walk in and you felt a difference. Um, not that the location was that much different, but the people were that much different. And so we did some research with them. And one of the things that that they used to kind of build this employee engagement and to get everybody excited and various different things was a weekly, uh, you know, Thursday morning huddle that they would do. It was all employees that could came to the atrium. They talked about Hey, here are the things that are happening this week. Here are the here are the clients that are coming in. Here are some you know operational pieces. It was short. It was sweet. But then they also recognized some of the employees and various different things. That for many of the people that were that we interviewed when we did that was one of the best things. It was like they felt part of this this community of this tribe. Um, and, and they felt very empowered by it. How long did those meetings last? Were they were they ten minutes? Were they an hour? They were short. They were definitely not an hour. I think they were between ten and fifteen minutes. And yeah. so they were they were compact. Um, maybe they didn't have enough time to get bored. Who knows? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I'm wondering is is timing part of this, right? The if you've got a meeting that goes an hour and a half, it's going to be hard to keep people's attention. Yeah, you know, for all that time. So again, going back to you know, what are things that people can do about their meetings? Right. One is is to create make them more sense making. Right. Yes. Providing providing opportunities for 
impact, being able to say we have a something that we need to make a decision on and we need input and various different aspects of that, if you do need to have a weekly update meeting. Yeah. And and sometimes weekly update meetings are just, you know, part of the part of the beast, you know, you have to do it. You you need to have that check-in. Well, and you need to have everybody aware of various different things going on. There are some aspects where that's really important. And sometimes it it can be where I might only have to, you know, for myself attending one of them, I might only have to pay attention at for a couple minutes in in here and the rest of it isn't important. So as as much as you can take all the fluff out of those, right? Yeah. And just make them exactly what they are. And oftentimes we schedule meetings as a half hour or an hour when in reality they could be 10-minute meetings and that's all we need. We need to do a, you know, a Thursday morning 8:30 to 8:40 or 845 meeting, don't make it a half hour because that's the standard on Outlook meetings. You right, know? And, sta- and definitely don't make it an hour. Definitely don't make it an hour yeah. when you don't need to. Yeah, and some corporations are better at that than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Some companies even have uh, stand-up rooms where uh, you're going to have, and this is, I think this is more common in the uh, development space, when, okay. you know, with coders, to have uh, stand-up uh, meetings, and I've seen this happen in uh, in environments where they're standing up around a single table, and they're all just kind of hovering. Uh, there's <laughs> I've seen others in in rooms where they have um, walking machines, they have treadmills, and everybody gets on the treadmill, but the meeting only lasts 15 minutes. But there's this just sense of we're all walking, we're all walking, we're all moving. So for meetings, um, so they're not boring, right? One is right. is provide more sense making components to them. To, you know, look at the timing and look at what the purpose is and how are you using these meetings and take the fluff out of it. Um, and three, that he, you know, George talked about emotional cues about how much sense uh, making is needed. And so how do you set those cues to, to be appropriate so that when you're in the meeting, you're appropriately cued. And so I think there, there could be some components within that as well. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Okay, let's talk about attentional focus. All right. What do you want me to, attention, or to well, focus on? Well, you've only got 300 milliseconds, so... What? 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 <laughs> exactly. So <clears throat> I, I find this to be really interesting because flow is a really important aspect of my songwriting life. Okay. Right? So I like, uh, and, uh, and in work too, there are times when I'm writing or when I'm discussing with a client and I really feel that sense of flow and, and really have that sense of all the attention that I'm putting into this is really worthwhile. And I get that sense of flow when I'm looking at Twitter and I'm just playing my, <laughs> my little chess game and <laughs> I, I, I do, but also I, I agree right. with you, but I think there is an interesting component, right? It's so, not judgmental. I mean, in, in that way, it, well, it, it, it can't, no, flow is not judgmental. Flow is not judgmental. But you know, our the, tension is in some ways not judgmental. Right. But the, the important thing is, is sometimes we get into flow in very, in situations that maybe not as productive as we want. And so how do we get ourselves out of that? Because flow is hard to break, right? When you're in flow, you don't get bored. So you don't stop to to take a moment to assess and, and maybe get your explicit com, um, thinking going above and beyond and saying, oh, yeah, I don't want to do this. Let's do something else. Right. Um, when in reality, you know, many times you're going down that, that social media trail and you don't want to be doing it, but your mind is so doped up on dopamine and, you know, various different things. All that the are stimulation in, that you get from social media. And that you're in that flow mode. And so yeah. it's really hard. But I loved 
George's component about use it or lose it, that we can only focus on one thing at a time. Right. And so, right. so boredom is this indicator for us that we're not focusing on the right thing to have that right sense-making component of what we expect. And so that's, that's that boredom component. Um, and flow is 180 degrees the opposite of that. Flow is that other, but, but that doesn't, again, going back to your judgmental component, there, that aspect of being in flow, you can be in the wrong flow. <laughs> right. And so, <laughs> that's right. But, so. And, and that's an overriding judgmental system that we have to, th- that takes awareness and intention. And we have to, and that, again, it's contextual. Right. Right. Because uh, if if you're spending the next two and a half hours on Twitter, and you're really in the flow of it, and you don't want to be interrupted, right? Because you're not getting any signals that are saying I'm bored. You're getting signals that are like, yeah, this is really good. Then the it seems like you're going to have to be aware. You might have to put some kind of boundaries on on that flow to say there's only going to be so much flow on this. We're well, going to have to we're going to have to stop it at some point to move on to something else. Well, it's setting in some of the, you know, it's the architectural design of of that, right? So so are you setting in things where you might have um, you know, limits on your Twitter at what time you can go out on your computer and and look at it? Are there different things? If you know these things, get you in that state of flow that you don't get bored, that you stop and, and kind of look at those things. I think that could be an interesting component. Yeah. That was a tangent. That was really... That was great, though. <laughs> I, t- I so dug that. All right, so... Let's talk about method acting. So this is interesting. We were talking about this before we, we started um, the grooving session. What if... So I, I was fascinated at the way George and uh, his, his co-authors looked at the uh, component of um, getting that emotions and, and Identi- how, yeah, identifying I, identifying emotions, emotions in, in in pattern brain patterns right and the fact that they used these acting students that were trained in method acting and that wasn't the part that he was really focused on he was focused on on the brain patterns and how that did and and, and how they could predict the emotions by looking at the brain patterns yeah, which and is fascinating being able to read emotions via brain patterns yeah great fascinating stuff but what if you looked at the way that they did it and said well how can i take that method acting component and apply it to my own life. Because if they're actually not feeling that emotion, but they're trained in this method acting to elicit this emotion, then it showed in the brain patterns that they actually were eliciting these emotions. Yeah, they were real. They were real. So does that mean that we can use that component or potentially use that component to change our emotional state. So this is the fake it till you make it. Fake it till you make it. If I'm going into work and I'm having a day that I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm upset or I'm, you know, not fully engaged or I'm sad or whatever it is, and I realize I don't want that, I want to be in a different emotional state, can I take some method acting cues and, and basically act my way into an emotional state of being happy or moving forward to, you know, being more productive, whatever that would be. 
Certainly, certainly. It sounds like we're actually, this is the second major thing we've taken from the theatrical world. The other one is the yes and yeah. from, uh, you know, that, that comes from improv. Uh, but certainly, why couldn't we adopt these kinds of, of tools? And when we're, when we know that this is especially true when we know we've got a big presentation or an important meeting to attend or, or something important to write, having a, a positive disposition for that is going to be going to yield better results at least for us and probably the rest of you know, the people that we're going to be interacting with that right. day, and right? It, yeah, and it's not saying that you don't want to go through. If, if you suddenly lost your job, you, know, there's a, you should be sad. You should be angry. You should you know, have all of those emotions. And it's not so, saying, all right, let's just method act our way out of those emotions. I just got fired, so now I better method act my way into being happy. Yeah, I'm going I'm <laughs> to put a smile on my face and you know, dance out that no, door. No, no. No, but... But there is a component that, you know, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks after that being fired, that you're going, all right, I'm still stuck in this emotional, you know, downward spiral. Can we? I mean, this is probably getting way more into psychology or psychiatry than it is, <laughs> you know, some of the stuff that we're into. But but couldn't it be used to, to say, hey, we can, if we can get our thoughts and patterns that we're acting in this and that actually does change the way that our brain is patterned and that overall brain functioning component, so we actually are happy. Yeah. And I think it could be an interesting component. Can I just say that there's just another way of looking at this uh, using brain patterns to identify uh, emotions, and that would be with some kind of futuristic tool that could zoom in on your brain, and then I could have a device that would tell me exactly what your emotions are by looking at the brain patterns. That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> Think about it. Then you wouldn't be able to be. Oh, I'm I'm so happy to see you, Tim. When I'm going, that's that's crap. Obviously, <laughs> I can tell his emotion. He's just in a foul mood, <laughs> and and it just dipped here. No, <laughs> here's my the moment. I walked in the door. Here's my take on it. Right, <laughs> we we tended over over analyze things and over kind of look at those those elements. Not me. <laughs> but all of a sudden you're you're talking to me and and all of a sudden, you know, I get bored and all of a sudden, oh boom, that emotional meter goes to boredom and you all of a sudden it's like, what? What did I do? And I go, nothing. You know, no, now you're lying. And it's like you know, I I I think it would lend itself to being less helpful in personal interactions than we think. Well, let's check back in 30 years when that technology exists and All it's right. being sold on our mobile devices. All right. <laughs> there you go. Okay. He, actually, it's not going to be mobile devices. It's going to be implants in our heads and it'll just be there. There you go. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So so I'm going to change the... I'm turning the tables on you. What? Yes. I'm going to ask you a musical question. You table turner, you. Well, you already... You, you mentioned earlier in the, in the, in the grooving session here that you get into flow when you are doing music, right? Yeah. And, and doing music. So I, I did say that, didn't I? So help help us understand how is, what aspects of, is it the making of the music? Is it the performing of the music? What, what are the aspects that get you into the flow and can you describe what that's like? Well, I think that there's two distinct aspects. One is writing in, okay. the, in the composition phase. There's a flow... And uh, this really great cycle of of trying something, you know, of of creatively coming up with something, trying it, fail, creatively coming up with something, trying it, failing, 
coming up with something, trying it, and then success. And boy, that just stimulates, that's like a big dopamine spurt, right, to the head. And you just go, wow, that was so great. And then, and that leads to more and more and more. And then as, as a composition unfolds with verses and choruses and bridges and the right chords and the right melodies, and, and uh, that can just happen for hours. A, a friend of mine uh, talks about uh, a situation where his wife, uh, he, he writes songs from his home, his, his home studio, and his wife came uh, upstairs to the home studio and said, hey, you know, uh, you know dinner's going to be in about an hour. And he's like, oh, oh, great, I'll, you know, I'll be down. And then, you know, she comes up and knocks on the door and says, hey, just want to let you know I'm going to bed. And he's like, well, what about dinner? It's like, well, that was four hours ago. <laughs> and, and that's how that's how it feels that that there is absolutely this lack of of time sensitivity on the performance side the flow happens when the whole band is 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 playing together it's not just me it's it's a it really is a communal or uh, tribal experience so it's not with the audience per se or is well, that part of it yeah, it can. It can be with the audience, but it happens less for me with the audience than with the band. If the band is there, the, I think the audience comes along. Okay. If the it, It's rare that the audience leads the way. Let's put it that way. Interesting. Good. I, yeah. Just All right. My two cents. That's your two cents. Yeah. Well, with that, listeners, we hope you have enjoyed this conversation with George Lowenstein and Linda Babcock. We were super excited about it and have been so happy with uh, the you know graciousness of both of them so very much so we want to thank them but also uh, hopefully you enjoyed it and if you did leave a note send us a message you know let us know how we're doing how we're doing we're doing whatever it is that i say all that all right and with that keep keep on on grooving. grooving